Today we're in John's Gospel, and this particular text, like so many other moments of life in life, is a kind of signature picture of what Jesus is like. If you think about life and culture, I think you'd understand that there are particular moments visual images, if you will, that capture not just a situation, but maybe even kind of a broader narrative. Uh, You'll think about a moment in light of an image for the rest of your life. So, for example, this last week at the World Series, um, Washington Nationals brought home their first pennant ever. Any any Washington National fans in the room? Okay, there was... There was nobody in the first service, so uh, I, don't, I don't know what that means, but I would suggest to you that when, I mean, no shade on the Washington Nationals, but, what, what, but when this series is going to be remembered, I think the image that most people are going to think about is this one, right here, right? This is Jeff Adams, who rather than setting his beer down, yes, I just said beer in church, okay, so he, set his, he didn't set his beer down, he absorbed a home run hit and then, uh, grab the ball afterwards. This guy's become famous, t-shirts that say save the beers. I mean, all of that, it's just gone crazy, okay? So that, that's gonna be the image that's gonna live, I think, for a long time with this last World Series. Here's another one. September 11th, 2001, Twin Towers are hit, New York City. About a month later, World Series is being played in New York City, and in that moment, President George W. Bush threw out the first pitch. You remember this moment? vest underneath that jacket, bulletproof vest, threw a perfect strike right down the middle. And this moment was not just about the president throwing a strike with a bulletproof vest. This is a moment about the nation feeling like maybe there's hope in a pitch, I know. But those moments have images and emotions beyond themselves. I wanna suggest to you that what we have in John 13 is an emblematic moment. A moment where we see Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And this picture that John paints for us is designed to have a a bigger, memorable narrative to it. John has done this throughout his gospel. We have seen other historical moments. We've seen Jesus turn the water into wine. We've seen the woman at the well. We've seen the resurrection of Lazarus, the anointing of Jesus by Mary. And each of these events point, or or rather Martha, each of these events point to something that is, it's Mary, isn't it? Mary anointed his feet. I just want to get that right in case any of you send me an email tomorrow morning, right? (laughs) Got it right. Each of these moments, though, are designed to communicate something more. And when we come to the moment of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, This is a moment where John shows us what Jesus is like and shows us what his disciples are to be like. So if you wanna like roll the replay back and say, show me a clip, like what's Jesus like and what are his disciples to be like, this would be one of those clips as Jesus washes the the feet of the disciples. So here's the, the singular concept or the phrase that we're gonna talk about today and I want this to stick with you. Watch Jesus go low. I want you to watch Jesus go low, but I intend that outline to stick with you because I want you to watch Jesus in this text. I want you to see him. I want you to see what he does. 
and then I want you to feel what you need to feel in this text, and then I want you to be committed this next week and beyond to say, I'm going to go low. I'm going to watch Jesus, and I'm going to go low. Because there's some of you, I'm telling you, tomorrow you're going to be in a meeting, and it's going to get testy, and most people are going to act a particular way. And you've got to remember, this moment on the Lord's Day, go low, go low. Some of you are going to have an argument tonight, husband and wife, maybe with a roommate or in your fraternity or sorority, there's going to be an issue, and you're going to be tempted to do what most people do. You're going to escalate. And this text says, watch Jesus and go low. Parents, you may have an issue with your kids this week, and you got to figure out not only how to be able to shepherd them, but also how do I demonstrate what godly behavior is like? I got to go low. Got to go low. So watch Jesus and go low. It's interesting, the focus of the Gospel of John shifts at this moment. John 13 through 17 is a new section. The public ministry of Jesus is nearly closed. His teaching ministry is for sure. And now we have this internal message that Jesus gives to his disciples. John sets up this section in verse 1. Look at the text. Now, before the feast of the Passover, so this is the last week of Jesus' life. He's in Jerusalem. The feast of the Passover is being celebrated, and he will be crucified during this week when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, so he's accomplishing his mission. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John loves the word love. He loves the word love. You can see it in 1 John, how often it appears. If the Apostle Paul loves the word righteousness, John loves the word love. And it's almost as though He places a banner over this entire section that Jesus loves them to the end. John's writing this after seeing the whole of Jesus' life. He knows what's going to happen. He knows how the disciples fled. He knows about Peter's denial. He knows the lonely road that Jesus will walk to the cross. And he wants you to see everything in what Jesus does is marked by this theme of love. He loved them to the end. John wants you to smell the aroma of Christ's love in everything that he does. Charles Spurgeon, a 19th century pastor in London, said this about the love of Christ. He will love his people to the utmost end of their unloveliness. Aren't you thankful? Friend, your unloveliness can never outpace God's grace. Their sinfulness cannot travel so far, but his love will travel beyond it. Their unbelief even shall not be extended to so great a length, but what his faithfulness shall still be wider and broader than their unfaithfulness. If our sins be mountains, his love shall be like Noah's flood. Oh, man, that's awesome. John loves contrasts. So he he sets this text up with this big theme. Jesus, last week of his life, headed to the cross, going to the Father, loves them to the end. And John then flips it and shows us during supper, Verse two, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So here's this big mission that Jesus has, and once again, John shows us the contrast. He's done this all throughout the book. Light, darkness, hidden, revealed, rejected, received. 
And here we see the plot to kill Jesus is already in motion. So in the middle of the last week of Jesus' life, as he is loving them to the very end, as he's fulfilling the purpose that God has called him to do, there's a betrayer right in the mix. It says when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. Now, a couple things just to think about related to Judas. I don't, I don't know how you think about this, but you shouldn't take this as though Judas is just some passive player, like he's demon-possessed and the devil's just taking control and he's just doing the bidding of the evil one. It's not as though, I don't think, Judas decided at one point in time to ask Satan into his heart. Rather, what John is saying is this, and hear this. He's saying that Judas's plans fit with Satan's plans. We don't have time to fully explore this today, but I just want to caution you not to relegate Judas's sin into some distant and unimaginable category. See, Judas is participating in a satanic conspiracy. My guess is, however, he doesn't even know that it's satanic. He's just greedy. He just signed up because of what Jesus was gonna bring him, and when Jesus didn't deliver the goods, when Jesus didn't give him what he thought he was going to get, Judas was willing to betray Jesus. When disappointment in what he wanted was suddenly palatable in his soul, and when he couldn't get what he craved, then he was willing to sell out the Son of God. Friends, can I just tell you, having been in pastoral ministry for a while, I have seen the devil use people in terrible ways. But you know what I've also found to be true? And it's really scary. Those people don't know that they're the instruments of Satan. They just want what they want and they don't care about the cost. And so here we find in the midst of Jesus' disciples, a betrayer. Another thing you need to think about here is this, this actually is important to acknowledge that here is the Son of God and one of his 12 disciples is going to sell him out. Sometimes people have a wrong thought process that they think that if parents are faithful or leaders are godly, they'll, they'll never be any Judases. Sometimes I talk with parents who are really sad about their wayward children, and, and understandably, they, I know why they would grieve, I understand that, but they sometimes over-associate that if we had been the perfect parents, our children wouldn't have rebelled. The problem is the Garden of Eden. If the perfect parent got himself with children that rebelled. So, Take that as a comfort to those of you who have wayward children. Sure, there's things you can look back and say humbly, we could have done some things differently, sure, but even perfect parents are no guarantee of godly response of children. Even perfect leaders, perfect pastors, although there don't, aren't any that exist, perfect parents or a perfect savior can still have Judases in the midst. So, John then says, Jesus, look at verse three, and just imagine 
you, you read the text so you know what's coming next, but imagine if you didn't know. Imagine hearing these words, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. You'd almost expect with that kind of flourish that the next thing that would be said is he suddenly appeared in the glory and the manifestation of all of his power. Or you'd expect him, he rose from supper and called out Judas and said, you're a betrayer, how dare you, and killed him on the spot. You'd expect with that kind of flourish for Jesus to stand and give an enormously important address. But no. What does he do? Look at verse four. He rises from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it on around his waist. Like this is just completely opposite of what you would think in light of what John is saying, unless it's exactly what John wants you to see. The contrast, son of God, fulfilling the mission, has a betrayer. Jesus, knowing all things have been put into his hands, fulfilling the mission of God, rises from supper, and he becomes a menial servant. John wants you to see the demonstration of Christ's humility he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. John creates this incredible image. Here is Jesus removing sort of his normal apparel. He's reduced to kind of the bare minimum of clothing. He's taken a towel that has become part of his apparel, and these disciples are likely laying on the floor around a rectangular table shaped sort of in a U. They're leaning on their left arm, eating with their right at a small little elevated, think kind of oriental-natured table, and Jesus gets up from supper, pours water into this basin, and begins going one by one. He picks up their feet, and he pours water and takes a towel and begins caressing and wiping their feet, and he doesn't do it just once or twice or three times. He does it four to the fifth to the sixth to the seventh to the eighth, to the ninth, to the tenth, to the eleventh, to the twelfth disciple. Oh, church, feel the tension of this moment. Hear the, the, the trickling of the water. Feel the, the awkwardness as the meal stops and Jesus takes upon himself this lowly task, something that was completely contrary to the culture in which they lived, something that is completely contrary to human nature. If you have this kind of authority, you have this kind of power, you use it. And in the day and age in which Jesus lived, might made right. Kings didn't wash feet, emperors didn't serve. Centurions, they told people what to do. They didn't get down and dirty like this. They were removed. Their authority, their awe, their glory was connected to the separation from the common people. They were looked up to because they were so different than anybody else. That's why the Romans viewed their leaders as gods. They were not like us, and they would never do what we do. And here is Jesus who completely upends that whole model. He comes down to earth, takes the form of a servant. He washes the dirty feet of these disciples and one of them is his own betrayer. 
This whole idea of servant leadership that I'm sure you've heard about, you need to know if you're not a Christian, like that idea came completely out of the Bible, out of the Jesus model. This is not what normal leaders do. It's no wonder that the Apostle Paul, reflecting on this in the book of Philippians, says about Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant being made in the likeness of men. Remember, these are the disciples who previously had argued about who's going to be great in the kingdom. No, I'm going to be great. You're not going to be great. I'm going to be great. I'm going to be like, I'm going to be like the Department of Defense. Like, I'm, I'm going to be in charge. I'm, I'm going to get Ephraim. I'm going to be at the table. I'm going to be at Jesus' right. And remember, John and James' mother came and appealed, you know, please make my sons, you know, on your right and on your left. And here's this mom, what you doing here? And the disciples are mad. And Jesus continually has these discussions with the disciples about the way in which they view leadership. They came into the city of Jerusalem with cries of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These disciples, no doubt, are in the upper room and they think this is the pre-meal, this is the pre-victory meal. He comes to Peter and Peter objects. Verse six, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? I mean, Peter just said what everybody else wanted to say. Peter just has no filter. So if you're that guy, be encouraged. Like, like you're in the Bible. You're right there, right? So he's like, do you wash my feet? I mean, he's already probably been washing other people's feet. Jesus answered, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And then Peter says to him, and frankly, I think this is, this is a bit commendable. Peter says to him, you will never wash my feet. Why does he say that? Because he loves Jesus. He knows who he is. He said he's the Christ. He's the son of the living God. Peter's like, this doesn't fit with who you are and who I am. I should be washing your feet. You don't be washing mine. No way. You will never wash my feet. And then Jesus says to him, oh, how gentle and how clear his words are. Jesus says, if I do not wash it, you have no share with me. What does he mean? It means, Peter, if you don't understand what I'm doing to you and why this is in the essence of who I am, then you don't really know who I am. As we'll talk about in a moment, this practice of servant leadership and the embracing of humility is also central to who Jesus is and central to what it means to be a Christian, that if you don't value and love humility, I'm not saying that you're perfect in it, but if you don't know humility needs to be embraced, then you really don't know who Jesus is. Because the essence of who Jesus is is that he goes low, when everything else in culture goes high, and what's crazy in going low, God highly exalts him. And this is the crazy paradox of what it means to be a Christian. He dies so that we might live. He goes to the cross, and then he's resurrected. The humble are exalted. The proud are made low. That's how it works in the context of the Bible. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Peter then. <laughs> uh, verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. <laughs> this guy. <laughs> he goes from, you're not going to wash my feet to, then wash all of me. You know, he's just like, ah, you know. Man, if I was in the room, I'd be like, somebody get him to be quiet. Like, shh, talk too much. And then Jesus says this. The one who is bathed does not need to wash 
except for his feet, but it is, but it is completely clean. He says to Peter, in effect, I love you, you're one of mine. We don't need to go there. He takes Peter's over-spiritualization of everything, and he's like, you're clean, but you don't understand my way. And then Jesus throws a bomb in the room. He says, you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, not all of you are clean. You know what that means? That at some point in the meal, Judas watched as Jesus poured water over his feet, and Judas knew what he was going to do, and Jesus knew what he was going to do, and yet Jesus washed his feet even though he was going to betray him. So consider the layers. Here we have the Son of God who knows what is before him. He takes the form of a servant. He washes the feet of the disciples. He loves them. He loves them. He loves them to the very end. Here is Jesus who loves Peter in the midst of his brash and impetuous, his overreacting nature. He patiently and lovingly rebukes him and washes his feet. And here is Judas who knows straight up what he's going to do. And Jesus knows what he's going to do. And yet Jesus washes the feet of his betrayer. We can barely stand when people actually betray us. Think what it would mean if you knew someone was gonna betray them and you're still kind to them. He could have called them out. He could have killed them in that moment. He could have embarrassed them. He could have shown his glory. It's no wonder that the Apostle Paul, when speaking about what the community of Christ needs to look like, says this, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, complete my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. How in the world can the Apostle Paul say that? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. Why does it mean to be a Christian? Because that's what Jesus is like, and that's what Jesus creates. So we gotta watch him. We gotta watch him carefully. We gotta see him in the Bible because everything within our culture, everything within our humanity says go the other way. And some of you, I'm telling you this week, you're gonna remember this line. Watch Jesus go low, go low, go low. Because everything within you is gonna wanna go high and go hot and go mad. And this text says go low. And when your heart says, no, 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 I'm gonna, it's not gonna work, I'm gonna be taken advantage of, this isn't the right way, everything within you is gonna say, don't go this direction, and the Bible says, go low, because God resists the proud, he gives grace to the humble, he exalts the lowly, he takes down the proud. Then Jesus interprets it and helps us to know what it means to go low. Look at what he says in verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? So Jesus isn't doing this just to do this. He's not doing it because someone's feet stunk and he was like, man, we gotta clean this up. He's doing this because he's, he's got a mission that's connected to a message. And there's, there's four things that I wanna show you here. 
First, in verses 13 and 14, we see that humility is expressed with one another. In other words, listen to me, you can't be humble and practice humility on your own. You need people, particularly annoying people in your life, to help you practice humility. So if you got like a, like, you're like, man, I got lots of those. And praise God, lots of opportunity to be humble. And here's the other news flash, that if you don't embrace that, God's gonna keep sending those people into your life. They're gonna have different names and different faces. And you're like, how come I got so many annoying people in my life? And maybe, brother, because you haven't learned to be humble yet. Jesus says, 13, you call me teacher and Lord, you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. So he says, I've given you an example. That means not only something to see, but also something to model your life after. And Jesus says that how believers are to interact with one another should connect to this idea of humility. And this is really important. Whenever Christians gather, humility has to be in the mix or there's gonna be an enormous amount of problems. Jesus' disciples, they, they were an interesting bunch. They had different personalities, different backgrounds, different educations. They had different occupations. They had different political ideologies. They had different gifts. And humility in that context was gonna be absolutely essential. And so in contrast to the way that the world works, the way the culture works, and the way that human beings by their nature work, Christians are called to live out our allegiance to Christ by not just believing in humility and affirming humility, but by acting in a manner of humility towards other people. Secondly, the text tells us that humility requires action. He says, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are them if you do them. So here's the deal. There's probably nobody in the room who came in this morning and said, you know what, I had no idea humility was important. Our issue is not that we know humility is a virtue or that humility should be embraced. Our problem is the application of humility. That's when it gets for real. Jesus says, if you know these things, you must do them. So knowing that humility is important is one thing, but acting in a humble manner, now that's where the rubber meets the road. So these disciples and all Christians are not just to have humble hearts, not just to think humble thoughts. They are to act in humble ways, especially as it relates to how they treat one another. Number three, humility takes the long view. Jesus says this, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread and has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. In other words, what Jesus is saying, I'm doing this because there's another reality that needs to be fulfilled. Humility does things that don't fit with what you would think in the short term, but is playing the long game. For instance, if you look at Good Friday, you could see Jesus' humility in going to cross, into the cross was a complete bust 
if you just look at Good Friday. But if you see it through the lens of Easter Sunday, the humiliation results in the exaltation. So you need to know that humility requires keeping a long-term perspective because initially it may feel like you have lost when in fact you are in fact winning. And finally, humility is a part of our commission. Jesus says this in verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives, the, receives me receives the one who sent me. So what Jesus does, as he does so often throughout this gospel, is he connects the disciples' mission and how they are to live with his mission. In other words, when you leave here today and you go out into the world, you're connected to the mission of Jesus, and central to that mission of Jesus is how humility works out in your life. You are called to talk about the gospel, and you are called to live like Jesus, and living like Jesus means that you are humble in a way that is shocking to the world. And I just would ask you, is your humility shocking to people around you? The disciples of Jesus put away pride. They watch Jesus. They go low in their attitudes and in their actions. The disciples of Jesus show the world what Jesus is like. So we are not just to embrace humility because it's right. We're to embrace humility because it is central to the mission of Jesus in the world. So when something comes up this week, can you just watch Jesus, watch Jesus, watch Jesus. Go low, go low, go low. So now what do we do with this? If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, you may know proud Christians, and I'm really sorry you've had that experience. We're embarrassed by how proud Christians can be. It doesn't fit with the gospel. Christians are humans, they make mistakes. And then there's some people who claim to be Christians and they're so full of themselves, they're not really Christians. They just, they just say they are, but they don't really know what it's like. And you need to know, if you're not a Christian, that there's people like that in the world. They say I'm a Christian, but nothing about their heart reflects because they just, no facts, but they've never had a true changed heart. So why is humility so connected to what it means to be a Christian? Here's why. Because Christians believe fundamentally that we're wretched, awful sinners. It means that everything we are has been affected by our sinfulness, and the only hope that we have is that Jesus came and paid our debt. He took our sins, and by trusting in him, we can be forgiven such that everything a Christian has, he only has it because Jesus paid for it. My whole life has a receipt to it, and it has Jesus' name at the bottom. I got a big bill and Jesus paid it all. And every part of my life, every good thing that comes to me is only because of God's mercy to me. If I got what I deserved, whoo, I'd be in hell. But because of the mercy of Christ, he's not only forgiven me, but he puts me in a position where he gifts me and helps me. And that's true for every believer, such that the apostle Paul says this, what do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is nothing. Which is why then Paul says, therefore, pride is excluded. Pride is crazy. It takes people who have received everything and they act as though they bought it all. The Bible says that that's the core message of what it means to be a Christ follower. So if you're a Christian, that's what you believe. If you're not a Christian, that's what you must believe. And that's why sometimes Christianity seems so upside down. If you're a Christian, it means then you have to rehearse this. Like what I've just told you, probably every Christian knows what I've just said. That's not a new thought for you. But the problem is, is our commitment to that starts to leak. Pride begins to sneak in. We start taking credit for things. We're easily offended because we think we deserve to be treated better. 
We see other people's faults as bigger than our own. We get a little judgmental. We, we, we want people to honor us. And we need to be reminded what God did for us. We need to be reminded, what did I deserve? We need to be reminded who we are. Because if we don't, the narrative of the flesh and the world will take over. It means that we need to rehearse this so that we can live this out because when your value is rooted in your identity in Christ and not rooted in your position, no title, degrees behind your name, like that doesn't give you value, you can serve others in a way that doesn't have to be self-advancing. You can serve people just because you've been served by God's grace. When you're securing your identity in Christ, you can love hard people because you're a hard person. Harder than anybody knows. And let's be honest, you're the biggest sinner that you know because you know your sin. Like in this room, Mark Rogop is the biggest sinner that I know. You know why? Because I know my issues. I can just guess about yours. Can guess a lot about yours, but I know mine. (laughs) The humble are not easily humiliated. Now listen, this doesn't mean that if there's an issue of injustice, something illegal, something improper that's going on, it doesn't mean that that's tolerated. Humility can actually look like saying, I love you too much to allow you to do this to yourself or to another person anymore. This has got to stop. I'm going to handle it in a firm but humble manner. But firmness and humility can go together. So don't hear me saying that you're a doormat What I'm saying is that you have the same type of sacrificial and convictional love that Jesus had, where truth and mercy met. And then what do you do when you make the investment and you choose humility and it doesn't work out in the immediate moment? You bank your life on this text from 1 Peter 2. For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we have been healed, for you were straying like sheep and have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You have to rest in the freedom of who you are in Christ. You rest in the fact that I'm clean, so go low. Why does it matter what they think of me? Why does it matter about my pride? Why does it matter that I'm here again? I'm gonna go low, go low, go low, go low. This is how John Piper put it. Pastors, go low. Elders, go low. Head of households, dads, husbands, listen to me, go low. Small group leaders, go low. Presidents of companies, owners, supervisors, managers, go low. Rock your employees' minds. I've never seen a humble leader like this. Why? Because I'm a Christ follower. Brothers and sisters, go low. A students, go low. Good athletes, go low. Pretty teenage girls, go low. Christians, 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 go low. Represent your Savior to know his joy because you are completely clean. What does John say here? He says, watch Jesus. 
So here's how we're going to end today. Down here at the front, this text has just slayed me this week. I praise God for it, but it has been a workout because I need to go low. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead you here. I'm going to kneel, and I'm going to pray a few things over us as a congregation. And if you feel led to say, this message has resonated with me, Lord, and just as an emblem of my desire to follow you, I'm going to come and I want you to kneel here next to me. And I'm just going to pray for all of us as a congregation. And if that can't happen in this setting, where in the world can it happen? I just want to encourage you. Brothers, just to take a step to go low, take a step to say enough to pride. No matter where you are in the sanctuary, if your heart says, new way, you got to go and go low and go low quick. So let's pray together. And you join me if you feel led. Oh Lord, our hearts are not humble. We know they're not. We know the gospel. But we are far, far, far from imaging the person and work of Jesus. Lord, some of us this week have seen the faults of others more clearly than our own. Other people's sins seem much worse than our own. Lord, we're easily offended. We're overly sharp with our words. We have a posture of defensiveness because we're so worried what people think of us. Lord, we resist serving people when asked. We think particular tasks are too beneath us. We are appalled when we're treated unfairly. Lord, we got mean people in our life and we want to be mean back, so help us. Lord, there may be people in our lives who are really hard and we need to pray for them right now, asking for you to give us grace to love them well. And so, Lord, we, we humble ourselves. We, we agree with the text that, Lord, there's blessing when we get on our knees and seek you. There's Grace to be found when we humble ourselves. We don't want to be on the side of resisting, of being resisted by you because we are unwilling to be humbled. God, remind us of the gospel. Remind us of the cross. Remind us that everything we have, we have received. And would you let this church be known as a body of people in the world who look like Jesus? So Lord, we've seen you in this text. And we want to go low. Help us. Help us go low. And we pray this in the name of Christ, our risen and humble King. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.